Greetings from uh, Parklands uh, Christian Church, which is in um, Logan or Park Ridge. Uh, it's uh, the congregation that I'm a part of um, this morning. And I always I like to, wherever I speak, bring greetings from my church because I think it's just such great to have, great to have a reminder that we're part of a family. Amen. That we're part good. of a bigger family. We're part of something that is is bigger than just you and me, and bigger than just um, this church. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about staying the course. And uh, I really want to encourage you um, this morning that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Hallelujah. He made you, He created you, and He has a plan and a purpose for you. There are just so many things that come at us in life that could cause us to leave the course that God has for us. And my encouragement to you today is uh, to stay the course. So I want to read um, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8 for you this morning. So if you have your Bibles or, or your iPhones or whatever you use for your scripture, if you could, you could turn there. In fact, most of what I'm uh, speaking about this morning comes from what is happening in 2 Timothy. Paul is at the end of his life. He's in, he's in prison on an island, uh, not free to leave. And 2 Timothy is written in a very reflective way, the sort of thing that you would expect somebody who's, who's contemplating um, the shortness of time he has left, but looking back and using the opportunity to reflect. Uh, this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I have finished the race. Other versions say, I have stayed the course. I have stayed the course. What's God's course for your life? How will you know you finished it? What does finishing the journey God has for you look like? How do you know? How do you know you're on the right track? As a, as a pastor, so my background, you know, because Rob only told you the really good bits. Uh, my background is that uh, I'm, a, I'm a teacher by background. I trained as a teacher. Felt, got um, saved at the age of 15 in school and uh, wanted to go to Bible college, but grew up in a in a Christian small C home. You know, not a Christian home, but a home that acknowledged church and acknowledged God in some way. But my parents actually saw my becoming Christian as a statement that they had done something wrong, that they had let me down. Because if I needed something other than what they could provide, they had not provided enough. And they um, spent quite a bit of time trying to um, persuade me... Uh, to move away from Christianity, that I didn't need it. So I wanted to go to Bible college because I wanted to serve God. And I had this idea that how you served God was you became a pastor. And I kind of didn't really have any other idea of how you might serve God. So I had God in this box of what that looked like. Um, but I knew I couldn't go to Bible college because my parents wouldn't support that. So I did what I thought was the next best thing and I went to teacher's college. Because I figured that would be good training for when God called me to be a pastor. And I trained as a teacher. I'm a high school 
English geography history teacher. Um, I'm the only geography teacher in the history of Blackwater State High School to get lost in the local <laughs> national park. <laughs> and they had to send the ranger out, the park ranger out, to find me. But in my defence, I found myself. I just wandered around until I found something. In fact, the ranger pulled up and said, there's a guy missing, have you seen him? I said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> and after two years of, of teaching, I applied for Bible college and was accepted into Bible college in Townsville, Rima Bible College, which was one of the premier um, AOG and ACC Bible colleges of that day. And uh, in planning to go to Townsville, I rang the school principal there, uh, a guy who, David Barstool, has become a great friend of mine over the years. And I asked him for a part-time job because I needed an income and a job for my wife, who's also a teacher. And he sort of said, sure, I can give you a job. We need Christian teachers, but why are you going to Bible college? And he spent about an hour and a half trying to talk me out of going to Bible college on the phone. And um, he, he, still, he tells that story a little bit differently to me. Um, my version's right. Always, of course. You know, there's always three versions of the truth, yours, mine, and the truth. Yeah. Um, but he, he made a lot of sense. He made a lot of sense. Why would God prepare you in the way that he did? Christian schools were just getting off, in a, uh, up and running in Australia. The law uh, had changed in um, the 70s to allow that to happen. And most of the Christian schools you see around today started between 1978 and 1982. This was 1983. And uh, I sort of said to him, no, I don't want to work in a Christian <coughs> school. And... Um, hung up the phone and started to get phone calls from people looking for Christian teachers and school principals. And one of them was a church in Mackay in, uh, in North Queensland. And through a series of events, God just really spoke to my wife and I, and we went there and we started a Christian school from nothing. We had 18 children in grades 1 to 7 on the first day, and we grew that school to 1,100 students across uh, two campuses, um, and I spent 33 years as the principal of that school before I um, felt God really call me on. And uh, the result of that was that I ended up at CHC uh, working there. Like, I can't really call it work. It's just, I mean, uh, it's just not work compared to being a school principal. <laughs> you know the greatest thing about working in tertiary is you don't have to deal with parents. It's just the greatest thing about working in tertiary. Um, but you see, I had an idea of what God's purpose for my life was. And he had a different idea what it was. He had a different idea. And over those years as a, as a principal and a pastor, the thing that has frustrated me the most about people's walks, one of the things, is how much time people spend wondering what the will of God is for their lives and how little time they actually spend doing it. And do you know, just think about this for a minute. You cannot change the direction of a stationary vehicle. You can get in a car and go, go left, and it's not going to go anywhere. You can get a car and go, go right, and it's not going to go anywhere. You can turn the engine on, you can get the revs up, you can take the brake off, and you can turn the wheel, and it's still not going to go anywhere. You can't change the direction of a vehicle that is stationary. It has to be in motion. Don't worry so much about what God's will is for your life. Start doing it. That's great. Once you're doing it, God can change that direction. He yeah. will. He will guide you and he will lead you. And what we do know very clearly from the scripture 
is that our purpose is letting our light so shine before men that they can see our good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. Amen. It's good. Our fundamental purpose is giving God glory. Yeah. You know, it's not getting people saved. Don't just dispel that myth. Because in fact, I can't save anyone. God can. The Holy yeah. Spirit can. But he can use me in that. Be who God wants you to be. And in being that person, walking forward, you will find his purpose for your life. See, my goal today is... Um, am I going one ahead? No? Okay. I have to work out how this blooming thing works. You can go right? backwards if you want. No, no. I want to put a pebble it's in your shoe. It's not biblical, though. Thank you. No. <laughs> I want to put a pebble in your shoe. I, I, I want to irritate you today. I want to provide a bit of irritation because, you know, you, you want to you wanna get moving. You want to... doesn't matter if you walk with a bit of a limp. Just get moving. I want to be a bit of an irritant to you today. Uh, in Acts, we actually read something that... Um, later becomes part of this story in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So I just want to, I want to read it uh, now, but I'm going to actually probably, I'm more going to come back to it later. So in Acts 15:31 to 41, this is a story about an argument Paul had with Barnabas. In fact, the scripture, and we'll read it in a minute, says they had a sharp disagreement. So sharp but they parted company. And in fact, as far as we can tell, they never spoke to one another again. That's a pretty sharp disagreement, wouldn't you say? Yeah. When they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. After they'd stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Verse 34. However... It seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. This has become one of my favourite passages in the scripture. Not because it's got any really dramatic words in there. Uh, not because it gives me an excuse to say, well, Paul can have a sharp disagreement with somebody, so can I, I can get away with that too. But because it sets something up. It sets up this guy, John Mark, who Paul said was no longer any good. Now, he abandoned us in the past. We're not, not going to take him with us. He's made a mistake. I'm writing him off. And the story of Barnabas, who history records, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, that was actually John Mark's uncle, who says, no, I have faith in this young man. Who, who's told you you're no good? Who's told you that, you know, 
You made a mistake. That's once. And I'm not trusting you again. When have you tried to do something right, failed miserably, and had people say, well, they, you know, she's no good, he's no good. I have. It's happened to me more than I like to remember. Now, what impact did that have on you? What, do you, what impact do you think it had on John Mark that the great apostle Paul said, nah, stuff him, leave him behind, he's no good. We, he can't be trusted, he's unreliable. And how much do you think it meant to him that somebody was prepared to come alongside him and say, hey, hey, yeah, you stuffed up, you made a mistake. But I see in you what God sees in you. You have a future. You have potential. Just leave that thought for a minute. At the end of the first year of the school, we'd grown, I think, to about 27 kids by then. We had our first awards night, you know, first giving out trophies night. And I was so excited that I'd gone to the trophy house. I'd bought the trophies and I'd had them all engraved. And on the night of the the big night, I went and picked them all up. It was just one cardboard box back then. It was a bit different when there was 1,100 kids in the school. Mind you, by then I wasn't the guy who was picking them up either. And I I brought them back and I took them up to show the board chairman. I was so excited. And he he picked one of them up. And he said, oh, he said, that's interesting. What's that scripture you've got engraved on there? Every one of them had this scripture engraved on them. And I went, oh, oh, you know, that's, um, it's, it's study to show yourself approved a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. And the chairman said, oh, that's interesting. Is that scripture in the Bible twice? Oops. Went, it must be. <laughs> it must be. So we looked up 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, right? Okay. Do you know what 2 Timothy 4.11 says? <laughs> Only Luke is with me. <laughs> this was pre-Star Wars. <laughs> so it doesn't quite have the same meaning it has today. <laughs> Only Luke is with me. So I raced back, uh, banged on the door of the trophy place that had shut. The guy was still there. And the gracious gentleman re-engraved a whole heap of trophies for me with 2 Timothy 2.15. I, I, I was so, so uh, grateful for that. You know, but, you know, if you look at me as I was then... You, you kind of wonder why anybody would have employed me as a school principal. I, I wouldn't have employed me. In fact, before I took up the position, somebody wrote the chairman of the board a letter and said, don't employ this guy. He'll be an embarrassment to you. He won't do a good job. You will regret that you employed him. Well, looking at that picture, I kind of get that. That picture was taken, that was actually in the paper, the Daily Mercury, the first day the school started. Uh, so it's a picture of me shaking the hand of, of the chairman of the board and uh, welcoming the school into being in Mackay. Um, you know, clearly I'm very much fitter and better looking today than I was back then. <laughs> Not long before I accepted the job, a friend of mine had uh, taken me aside and he said, I think I've got a word from the Lord for you. And I said, oh, great. Yeah. He's a good enough friend that I was prepared to trust that. And he read to me Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10, which says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. 
But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And, and a, a little bit more of that scripture. It's interesting. You know, I look at that, and I, that was what I was saying to myself. I'm too young to do this. I've had two years teaching experience. I'm a geography teacher who got lost on Blackdown Tableland. You know, well, he's going to, that's pretty awful. I'm going to start a school. Wow. But, but I knew it was what God wanted me to do. See how easy it would have been to leave the course? How easy it would have been to listen to the naysayers? The people who were coming alongside me and saying, you're an idiot. My dad who said, oh, you're leaving the security of the department. Long service leave. You know, good pay. Hmm. Do you think you'll be able to support your family? Uh, what naysayers have got alongside you? Who's, who's spoken into your life and said, mm, don't think so? In whatever way they have. And what are you going to do about that? So, just a little bit of brain theory. Yep, that's a brain. Yep. The brain is large, made up of, of three main components. Uh, so here's a cross-section of it. It's the, the smallest bit, that red bit, is commonly called the reptilian brain. I prefer to call it the autonomic brain. That's the part that keeps you breathing, okay? that takes care of those vital functions, heartbeat, um, body temperature, breathing, and, and balance. The orange bit is, is the limbic brain. And it's actually responsible for our emotions. That's where we feel things. Uh, it's the seat of the value judgments you make in your life, even without knowing that you're making them. The things that orient you in certain ways, unconsciously, but they exert an incredibly strong influence on how you behave. And that outside bit, that sort of foldy bit that we're all used to seeing, is the neocortex. And it's actually responsible for language for abstract thought, for reasoning, for imagination and for consciousness. But one of the really interesting things is the two bits of the brain, the limbic system and the neocortex, so the emotion, the centre of our emotions and our feelings and our judgments, doesn't talk very well to the part of our brain that deals with the language and with reason, with abstract thought and imagination. Now that's why you can get a gut feeling where you... you you, got, you just, but you can't put into words what it is, right? You know that feeling? Where you can know that you know that you know that you know, but you can't explain how you know, okay? And it's a really interesting thing. And we talk about our idea of success and God's idea of success. And they're often very two different things, aren't they? All right, I want to show you an example, and I want to use... Um, as the example, uh, the caste system. So this is a photo of a group of girls in a, in a boarding house that I've been involved with in Nepal. Um, these girls are Badi girls, B-A-D-I. You can research them. Every one of these girls was born destined to go into sex slavery. So the Nepali caste system, like the Indian caste system, has stratas. And you would know the untouchables are the lowest strata. But what I didn't know before I got involved with Nepal is that within the untouchables, there are other layers. And these guys are on the very bottom. And how do you know they're Bardi? Every one of these girls has a surname, Bardi. Every male who's born has a surname, Bardi. Now, I don't want to horrify you, but when mothers 
Barty mothers find out they're pregnant with a female, they will take a $400 American dollar deposit and promise to give their, sell their girls into sex slavery when they turn 14. Every one of these girls knows that they were de that's the life they were destined for before they were given an alternative. When they sing praises to God, they sing in a language I don't understand, in a music, that Indian music that's kind of discordant to my ear, but they know what they've been saved from. They know that their course has been dramatically changed and they've been able to be put on God's course for their lives. The caste system is insidious, but it's actually pretty insidious here in Australia as well. It's a lot more subtle. So I'll show you, I'll show you how. Uh, David, can I use you as an example, please? Now, just, just pretend I've never met David before. I actually never met him before this morning. But we've got a ritual, haven't we? We've got social rituals in our society. And the rituals basically go, hey, hi, I'm Craig. Hey, pleased to meet you, David. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is something that's banal, inane, has no value or meaning. You know, hey, it's just got cold a bit lately, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, not, we're not likely to say, I vote Liberal, I vote Labor. <laughs> we're not likely to talk about sexual preference or anything that's going to be really, really controversial, right? We're going to talk about something banal and inane. But eventually in the conversation, there's going to be a question. What's that question going to be? What do you do? Every time. What do you do? Um, an engineer. An engineer. Now, oh, that's really interesting. Now, who do you work for? Uh, a company called Maniacs. And what, what do they work on? Uh, we work on um, motors for electric flight. There you go, motors for electric flight. <laughs> he always told you that he's going to have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than anyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> so just sit down, Dave. I'm yep. going to use you again in a minute. Yeah. Now, in that brief conversation, Whenever you meet someone, you're doing a whole heap of judgment yeah. based on voice, based on articulation, based on hygiene, <laughs> based on dress, but largely based on what do you do. Because what do you do can be divided up into some approximation of income, some approximation of level of education, some approximation, therefore, of what type of house you might live in, what type of car you might drive, what is your potential future earnings. You see how we do that? We do it all the time. We make judgments about people. Uh, so let me just try that a different way. Try this. Hey, David. Hey, I'm Craig. Why are you... <laughs> it's a much more significantly difficult question to answer why are you than what are you but it is a much more important question for you to grapple with in your life than what because if you think about the purposes of God what you do how you do what you do is largely governed by why you do it. Now, as a Christian, David's an engineer, that tells me what his mission field is. It tells me the sort of people he can, has potentially, win for Christ. It tells me a range of different things, or it should tell me a range of different things, than it does if I ask not from that perspective. You see that? 
But why is so much harder? Because why sits within that emotion, that value-laden part of how we think, that gut-feeling stuff that we talked about. It doesn't sit in the logical reasoning part of the brain. It's much harder to answer that question. And yet, it's critically important that we tackle the, uh, the question of why. Let me give you another example. This guy's a guy called Samuel Pierpont Langley. Now, has anybody heard of Samuel, Samuel Pierpont Langley before? I've asked that question uh, in quite a number of countries of the world when showing this photo. I was in Bloemfontein, South Africa, and a young guy at the back said, I have. I thought he was lying, but I talked to him afterwards. He wasn't. He was telling the truth. Uh, and there was a guy uh, earlier this year at CHC who had heard of him because he, he'd read a book by a guy called Simon Sinek, which is Start With Why, and that's where I get this story from, from that book. It's also a great TED talk, Simon, S-I-N-E-K, if you haven't watched it, it's worth watching. Samuel Pierpont Langley, at the turn of the 19th into the 20th, the 20th century, so 1900s, the very early 1900s, was the General Secretary of the Smithsonian Institute in the United States. Now, the Smithsonian, being Secretary didn't mean he took minutes, okay? It, he was the boss. He was one of the brightest scientific minds in the world at the time. As a small child, he had shown an interest in flight. And he had built um, manned and unmanned gliders. And he built unmanned powered planes. As an adult, he was approached by the, um, the War Department of the United States, who had begun to see that if they had mastery in the air in battle that they would have an advantage. And he was asked, uh, with all of the power of the Smithsonian Institute, given a bottomless bucket of money, he was asked to invent powered, controllable, manned flight. <coughs> and he set about doing it. He was personal friends with um, Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, and with Dale Carnegie, one of the wealthiest men of the time. So he, he got working and he set up his first plane. Couldn't quite work out how to take it off. So he put it on a pontoon in a waterway. He got all the world's media there at the time. And, uh, and he went to launch this plane. But they had a catapult to launch it. And so they launched the catapult and the wings clipped two poles on the pontoon and broke off and it just fell in the water. So he's a bit disappointed with that, as you would be. He went away and built his second plane. And he, again, had all the media there. And he, he, I don't know what happened to the guy in the plane, the first plane. I don't know what happened to the guy in the second plane either. But again, the catapult. But this time, the inertia of the plane was greater than... Uh, the power of the, cat, the catapult was greater than the inertia of the plane. So that whatever the catapult was went straight through the middle of the plane, didn't launch it at all, and just destroyed the plane. And uh, two massive public failures. But, you know... Around about the same time he was doing what he was doing, over in a place called Kitty Hawk, not too far away, these guys succeeded in developing controllable manned flight, the Wright brothers. Now, these guys, not, not one of them had a college education, they and their friends. They worked in their father's workshop, which was a bicycle repair workshop, and they didn't have a cent to rub together. They actually went away every night at dark, when they could no longer experiment, went to their bicycles repair shop and built five sets of replacement parts for the next day. They planned to fail five times every day. 
Five times because they'd actually learnt by trial and error that that's the maximum number of times they could actually repair the thing, try again, <laughs> fail, repair the thing and try again in daylight hours. And then they'd go and build five sets of spares and come back at dawn the next day. When they first flew, they didn't tell anyone for two weeks. There wasn't any of the media there. They hadn't told anyone. Now when Samuel Pippot Langley found out that these guys had succeeded, don't you reckon he would have rushed over there and said, hey... Tell me your secret, I'd really like to know. But he didn't, he just quit and he faded away. And almost nobody has ever heard that he was involved in getting powered flight or experimenting with uh, manned powered flight. The big difference between Samuel Pierpont Langley and the Wright brothers is the Wright brothers had a why. Samuel Pierpont Langley only had a what. He wanted to be the first. And he wanted the fame and the fortune that was going to come with being the first. When he could no longer be the first, he, he wasn't interested. But the Wright brothers actually knew what a difference flight was going to make to the world. They knew it was going to transform their world. Around about the same time the Wright brothers were doing this, there were a whole heap of railway companies in the United States. Most of them are broken, dead and gone now. And those railway men would sit around with their cigars and their drinks and if you ask them what they did, they'd say, we're railway men. We're railway men. Because there weren't any railway women, really. It was railway men. <laughs> if what they'd said was, we're in the business of getting people and products from point A to point B as cheaply and efficiently as we can, they'd all own airline companies today. But they didn't. They just faded away into nothing. They, they had a what. They didn't have a why. If you're going to stay on course, stay on God's course for your life, you need to begin asking and answering your, the question for yourself of why. That's good. Not just what. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? You don't ask why so you can change what you're doing because you can't change the motion of a stationary car. You keep doing it and you find the why and God will change the direction if need be. Ask yourself that question. I want to come back to, to Craig's faux pas. Um, 2 Timothy 4.11, just in bringing this to, to close. I went back some years later and I read this scripture again, 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. But that's not all the scripture says. It actually goes on and it says, this is Paul, remember? This is Paul in the same letter where he wrote, <coughs> I finished the race. I have stayed the course. Okay? Same letter. He says this. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for ministry. This is Paul acknowledging that he got it wrong. This is Paul making a very clear message to John Mark. I was wrong. I want you to come because you are good. What you've done, what you've achieved, who you've become. I want to acknowledge that. I want to set this right. I stayed the course. I didn't necessarily not make any mistakes. You hear what he's saying? Get John Mark, send him to me. Who, who or what in your life has worked and conspired to put you off course? Have you taken on the world's ideas of what success in that course would look like? We should all have a little parrot on our shoulder. I call it the parrot of purpose. And every time we're doing something or planning something, the parrot should be in your ear going, What's your purpose? What's your purpose? Now, if you've ever had a parrot, to train a parrot to say that, 
takes quite a bit of time, doesn't it? It takes quite a bit of repetition. It takes a lot of repetition. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? We should all have a power of purpose on our shoulders. And if you can't answer that question in a way that is in line with God's calling on your life, with the course God has set for you, then I would suggest you think about the decision you're going to make very, very carefully. And you think about the action you're going to take. I hope today that I have put a bit of gravel in your shoe. That you will uh, recognise that God made you. That God created you. And that he has a unique plan and a unique purpose for your life. And that you need to not be worried about what that is as much as getting on and doing it. Stay the course. Let nothing distract you from the main game that which he has called you to. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning. I pray, God, that you'll take something of the foolishness of what I've said, God, and speak it into life, into people's hearts, take it from their hearts into their minds, and cause it to be something that will uh, ignite um, action within them, God. That they can get their vehicle of purpose in serving you into motion and that God trusts that you will help change the direction if it's going the wrong way. Father, let there be, let your Holy Spirit be a parrot of purpose in people's lives. Father, as decisions get made, even little ones, in whether to speak to somebody about you, in whether to say something in a set of circumstances, God, Father, that parrot of purpose will just... Just remind them to focus on the why rather than the what.